welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction I'm Avril Danchak, GP and Primary Care Medical Educator from Manchester. This podcast is brought to you with the support of Health Education England Northwest and their talented GP educators. I'm joined by one of them today. Mohan, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Avril. Thank you for inviting me to join you in this podcast. I'm Mohan Kumar. I'm a GP from Wigan. I've been a GP trainer for the last 15 years. I've been working with Health Education England as an associate GP dean, uh, supporting faculty development and also teaching in various master classes, including consultation skills. Thank you. This podcast is part of the module called TALC, Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning Care. And it's mainly about a chapter called How Can Your Words Be Healing in Their Own Right? This chapter addresses the language we use when we're explaining our ideas to patients because the words we choose can really create beneficial healing effects or even actually create harmful effects at times. So Mo, I wondered if you could start us off by explaining how words can have a sort of placebo effect and and what's meant by a nocebo effect. Thank you, Avril. Most clinicians would understand the placebo effect to be something where you get a beneficial effect by something which you don't think is as effective as it could be. In terms of words, we all know how positive methodology in conversation can be reassuring, can help people to understand what's going on with them and how it can even sometimes help them to heal. So the placebo effect may be seen as not real, but in terms of the conversations we have with our patients have an enormous impact on how they view their illness or lack of illness and how they view their body and how they benefit from having a positive mindset, which has been proven to be very helpful in the healing process. Equally, because words can terrify and create anxiety as well. And we both have worked as GPs and we understand when we listen to other people consult, how certain phrases can create a physical change, uh, even in the patient sitting in front of us. And you can see them visibly relax when you say certain things, and equally you can see them tense up. This is the advantage of videoing consultations where as a third person, you watch this happen. And over the years, we both developed different phrases and words, which we know creates a very positive mindset and helps people heal. And there's been a lot of research on the placebo effect. Neurologically, when they have given a positive framework or given something which is meant to heal them. You can see a lot of activity in the patient's frontal lobe, which is the social and the communication element of the brain. Even people with chronic pain, when they're being given positive reassuring words, the pain actually reduces, and there is a lot of activity in the frontal lobe which influences the pain centers. So this has been proven scientifically. Consultation skills, I've come across bizarre situations where our trainees, I call it the Stockholm syndrome, because the the patient's mindset sometimes is, I've had this pain for a while. I know the doctor is sending me for an MRI scan. I hope the scan shows something. So therefore, they view a normal scan as an unfortunate incident. That's their narrative. But then to see the GP say that can really make us think twice, because I've come across, I'm sure we've all done, where the GP says to the patient, unfortunately, your scan is normal. And your brain goes, 
So what would be a fortunate thing, having a juicy tumor in the scan? Um, so I think um, we are able to reflect on the words we use even more in depth because those 10 minutes may be part of our longer working day, but for the patients in front of us, they are such a meaningful focused time. Every word we say to them that time is sort of seared in their memory. And when they go back, those are the words they recall. So using words which create a positive effect, like the placebo effect, is much more beneficial than using nocebo words. And as we go through this podcast, we'll be delving into what kind of words can create negative. So one of the examples, like I said, is, so instead of saying, unfortunately, your scan is normal, the GP can beam and say, you know, I'm really glad your scan is normal. Yeah, Let's yeah. now move on to looking at how we can help your pain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think your emphasis on the words that we use is like the, the converse of the emphasis we give in training on paying really close attention to the words that the patient uses. Because in a short consultation of 10 or 15 minutes, as you say, every word counts, every piece of information counts. And it's actually a very rich encounter if we if we make it work well. So I thought it might be helpful to really talk about some practical examples. So let me give you an example, which I heard in a real consultation where a clinician said to a parent who was worried about their child who had a basically runny nose and an upper respiratory tract infection. And the clinician said, well, I've had a quick look at them and I can't particularly find anything wrong on examination as far as I can see anyway. Now, that might be kind of strictly medically accurate, but what do you think will be going through the mind of the parent who hears that, Mo? I think for a parent whose entire focus is listening to what the clinician is going to say next, and they are waiting with considerable tension to see, I hope my child is normal, saying something like, I've had a quick look, first of all, implies it's a cursory look rather than a detailed look. And secondly, I can't find anything wrong may sound okay to the clinician. But for the parent, or it may sound like, is there somebody else who can find something wrong uh, if you can't find anything wrong? And as far as I can see anyway, once again implies, while it's medically accurate, it's not a reassuring sentence at all. It leaves behind a lot of questions, which some parents may articulate and come back and ask more, but most patients may not articulate that, mm -hmm. or the parents don't say that, and they quietly go away, will need to worry back at home. Mm -hmm. So this clearly illustrates a nocebo effect, where the purpose of the clinician's explanation is meant to reassure. Instead, it creates more anxiety and more concern, and yeah. may even lead them to consult another clinician or go to another place to find some answers. Absolutely. I, th I think that's very true. So could you just give us a sentence that might be better to convey the same sort of information? What could the clinician say instead? At first pass, when we start saying things like that, it may not sound familiar, but with practice, saying something like, I'm really pleased to say my full examination shows a healthy, normal child. The child seems to be coping well with the runny nose. And even though there might be a cold, the child is thriving well. So everything yeah. we see which reassures us from not doing anything further with the child needs to be conveyed in a positive impact. And I think that's words such like pleased to say, full examination, healthy, healthy, normal child, all have a placebo effect. And Are they accurate people, as well? Very yeah. accurate. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. and I also think in these circumstances, if the clinician does not emphasize too much on double negatives, and I think not only in clinical consultations, even in normal life, in normal relationships, you're not that bad after all. It may sound very British, but <laughs> you are very good sounds a lot better. <laughs> no, 
that's absolutely true. And I, I think I'd like to just delve a little bit more into this particular kind of situation, really, because one thing, particularly in primary care, is we're examining people often quite early in illnesses or with illnesses that are going to evolve over time, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. And so there is always a degree of uncertainty and kind of slightly perhaps wanting to hedge your bet. So I'm wondering if you would like to just delve into perhaps some of the reasons why some of this uncertainty comes out in the language when it's not warranted by perhaps a normal examination as such. I think the transition from medical student to a foundation trainee has several steps within that. And then the transition from being a foundation trainee, working predominantly with the hospital into a GP training milieu where the kind of patients you see are completely different. The cohort which approaches you may approach you with the mildest arrival of symptoms and not necessarily wait for them to be fully formed. So there is an element of medical uncertainty, which is very highly prevalent in general practice, simply because that's the reason primary care has been placed close to people's homes. So they don't have to think twice about booking that appointment. They can go and ask any kind of clinical personal doubts to the clinician. So the role of the GP is to be present at the very front and look at symptoms in the mildest form, in the earliest form, some of which or most of which disappear without a trace, but some of which may then transition into a disease, which is completely opposite to what happens in an outpatient department, where the patients may be pre-triaged and they come with a very focused set of symptoms, which have been present for some time. So therefore, it requires a different kind of approach. I find that when you're a GP trainee, you may confuse the two things. The medical uncertainty is the nature of things as they are. So a chicken pox does not arrive with 32 spots. It has to start with a single spot, which then gradually spreads in a certain pattern. And normally in the hospital, you would see them with the full presentation of chicken pox. You would never see a mom arrive with a child with the first spot. And having noticed it during bathing the child, the mom may come in and say, do you think this is the start of a chicken pox? And the trainee may then stumble upon the words because they understand that at this particular stage, it's very difficult to make that kind of decision. But over the next 24 to 48 hours, if this single spot stays single, it's highly unlikely to be chickenpox. But if it starts to grow and spread in the pattern that is prevalent in chickenpox, then you can confirm the chickenpox. So there are two things which happen here. When you communicate this uncertainty, first, you want to reassure the parent. Secondly, we want to bring them in as a partner for a shared observation and a management plan. The difference between a medical uncertainty and a personal uncertainty, where you think, does my trainer, will my trainer know if this is chickenpox when they look at this single spot? Or is there a virologist or an epidemiologist or somebody in the hospital who knows that? The answer is no. Every clinician understands that in the first phase of start of the chickenpox, there will be some prodromal symptoms, but in order to confirm it's chickenpox, it requires the time as a diagnostic tool. And this is where the trainee may confuse the personal uncertainty with medical uncertainty and then use words like, I'm not sure, but you go home anyway. Mm. So the trainee, the, the parent may then think, if you're not sure, find somebody who is sure. Whereas if the trainee says, most chickenpox symptoms arrive as a single spot, but then the time to confirm the diagnosis is when the spots have spread, but the child will have a mild prodromal illness, mild fever. And here is how you can help me observe this. And then we can catch up in 24 to 48 hours and I can confirm it over the phone or a video consultation 
or even come back here. And that brings the parentless apart more. Mm. And this is why I feel our internal landscape of uncertainty and confusion between medical and personal can lead to use of uncertain language, which unfortunately can cause nocebo effect. Yeah. So I've just used, unfortunately, I should have said, fortunately, if you use positive framing and reassuring language, will cause a placebo Exactly, exactly. Now, I'd, I'd like to really drill down on this issue of language a bit more here, really, because we've talked a little bit about positive language when explaining things. But I think there are some more general and actually quite powerful ways to use our language to develop a more positive mindset. And I'm thinking of avoiding jargon, positive priming and the use of turning words. And I'm thinking, could you tell me a bit more about how people can avoid jargon first of all most doctors we inhabit the landscape throughout medical students and i think there is something in the region of we learn about 10,000 to 15,000 new words just becoming a professional in any field whether it's engineering computing or but especially so in medicine we learn a lot of words so instead of calling a kidney infection, we can call it nephritis, or you know, you can call it urinary tract infection, which makes the judgment, makes the assumption that the person in front of you knows what a urinary tract is. But the people who come to us, their vocabulary and their understanding of medical terminology, maybe they know a little bit more, maybe by watching medical drama or soaps, they may know a little bit, but it's very cursory. So using something which they may be embarrassed to clarify, can create further confusion. So if I say, I've looked at your throat and the internal surface looks normal, um, there are no signs which suggest there is an infection and it looks like a healthy throat, that is much more palatable and assimilatable by the person in front of us than saying, I looked at your throat, the tonsils look, they don't look very inflamed. I can see some craters and crypts and there is some exudate in this area, but it's not serious. It's not serious will be forgotten. And all they will remember is all this weird and wonderful terminology, which is jargon. And similarly, when we give out results, when we describe the results of a screening test. So for example, a patient may come to us wanting to know what's happened in the cervical smear. If you say, oh, there are some borderline cells, but you are okay, that's not enough. You need to explain what the smear is testing for and how the cervix is a place where there's a lot of change and some cells will go through that change, but the cells are normal and healthy and they don't show any signs of disease. It's a different way of explaining Mm -hmm. the same thing. It's amazing that throughout a day of consultation, how many jargon words we may actually use and how very few patients actually challenge us back and say, can you tell me exactly what it is? So it may be a blind spot for a lot of clinicians as well. I think that's very helpful and very true that we're so used to talking our medical language, we don't even notice it in the end. I'm interested in the use of priming words, particularly those that we can use to imply care and success. So I'm thinking about The way a clinician picks up a clue or a cue can be done in a positive way that builds up trust. So, for example, let's say somebody mentions their family history. Uh, You may yourself not think that family history is particularly important, but you can say to the patient, what you said about your family history is interesting and important. I'm going to check that out in detail so that we can weigh it up properly. That doesn't mean that when somebody says something like, I've got a distant cousin who had cancer, so I'm worried about it, doesn't mean that you have to join in that worry. 
it is an important thing that they've told you and you can say, let's weigh it up properly. And again, that will build some sort of trust, really. And I think when we use words like looking after you carefully or listened carefully and I noticed, uh, these are giving a, a thorough examination, a full examination. These can show that you're taking people seriously, that you're being meticulous and hardworking, and that's bound to build up trust, isn't it? And I think also when we talk about the effects of things and we say these tablets are going to make you feel more comfortable, they're going to really help, they're going to relax the spasm. This is framing the patient's experience of being cared for and having a positive expectation. And as you said before, using words like healthy, strong, normal, or as expected can be more effective than phrases like not abnormal or negative tests because like we're, we're quite happy with negative tests but actually a negative test sounds quite negative and like negative things are usually bad aren't they so even a simple thing like you know your tests were all negative could sound frightening to somebody else and we need to make sure we use the positive word another issue is this concept of turning words and I wondered if you could explain what turning words for example and and but however how do they change the impact of the words can you can you give me some examples there is something around the psychology of how we listen and what we take in sentences. And there's a lot of evidence which says that turning words can either heighten or lessen the impact of what you're trying to say. And it also, the turning words can almost edit out some element of the sentence and leave behind uh, almost like an after image in your eye when you look at the sun, just what you don't want them to remember. So for example, if you say to somebody, the drug gives some mild side effects, but is highly effective, or this drug is highly effective, but gives some mild side effects. There is evidence to say, if you say that it's a very good drug, but it has side effects, that people are more likely to remember what comes after the but rather than the highly effective bit, because it leaves behind the trail of that. And then they start to get concerned more about the side effects and they start to explore more about not the fact that it's highly effective, but the fact that what are the side effects? So the questions they come back to you may not be about the effectiveness of the drug, but it will be about the side effects of the drug. Equally, if you're saying something about you're worried about giving up smoking, but I think it's really important is one way of saying it. Or you can say you are worried about giving smoking and I think it's really important. And I'm wondering if you'd like some help with giving up smoking. And it illustrates how the and, and word, which is a turning word in this sentence, creates a much more a partnership approach. And it also implies that I understand that there is no controversy in this. I'm empathetic to your plight in giving up smoking and I'm here to help. Whereas, but I think it's really important implies conflict as if, you know, you may think this, but I think something is completely different and does not imply a shared plan. So these words, which we may not give a lot of importance to normally, but in, in the doctor-patient communication, have a huge impact on assimilating the information, what we give them. It creates a huge impact on concordance to the treatment plan mm -hmm. and partnership working as well. And something as simple as but and and. You can see it happen at home where you say, I think you've done fantastically well at school, but. 
You need to get up a bit early. And the child will only remember you. <laughs> the compliment yeah, exactly. is lost. You've just destroyed the compliment with a simple but. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, I think there's a, an argument for uh, never saying but in a consultation. I'm not I'm mm. not sure if it's actually possible, but it, it, I think there's an argument for it. And these, these issues about turning words, we've just touched on it here, but there's a whole chapter in the Skills for Building Effective Relationships, which is called Change Everything by Using Small Words Skillfully if and but when so and yes and I, I would encourage people to think about those in some detail really i'd like to move on to presuppositions too because these can help us encourage acceptance or rejecting certain actions aren't they so if i say to you when you take this medicine your pain will improve it's a bit different from if i say if you take this medicine your pain will improve because if you say when you take this medicine your pain will improve it assumes that somebody's going to try it out and it really focuses attention on the improved part which is the bit that we want them to be thinking about whereas if we say just well if you take the medication it implies there's a bit of doubt a bit of hesitation and then the bit about the improvement can seem a lot less prominent really I'm also thinking about using positive language when the situation is quite serious or difficult, because actually quite a lot of our patients have serious illnesses or ongoing uh, chronic conditions and so on. And we need to show concern and commitment in some more difficult contexts. So I'd like to discuss this with you a bit. So, for example, if somebody's got a potentially serious symptom like chest pain or coughing up blood, is there still a place for positive language there, Mo, do you think? Absolutely. It recalls, um, I had a patient who, for reasons of her own, had a, a breast lump, which then evolved into something more serious because of her anxieties about what would happen. And you have this bizarre psychological effect where you're worried about something, but you don't want anybody to find out what it is. You don't want the bad news. So by the time she came to me, it was quite an advanced state of breast cancer. So traditional science would dictate, you know, your five-year survival studies will dictate it's quite a serious illness. You could almost say that there's hardly any room for positive language in such a scenario when there is a forgetting breast cancer showing up in your examination. Even your face is showing how serious it is. And the, and the patient was telling me, I know I've been really silly, I should have come before, but even at that time, I said that Everything which has gone on before your five-year survival rate and traditional medicine is based on each individual's journey. You yourself have the ability to change what happens when you present with such an advanced cancer. You are here. We are going to take you to the right place and give you the best possible treatment. Common sense dictates prepare for what traditional evidence shows. There is always room for hope. Even now, it's hard for us to eliminate, but it's a nice place to say, and there is always hope. It's a very individual journey. Evidence-based helps us to design the treatment, but each person's disease journey. So I did a lot of positive framing because I felt so upset and helpless that I feel like she's come to me at such a late stage. This patient then went, she, her, her daughter was a nurse as well, so there was a lot of medical link in the family. But when they actually went back, got the treatment, what was originally meant to be a three-month she lived for eight years and made sure she visited, She was happy to see her granddaughter get married. All those things she wanted to see, she saw. Her pain was controlled very well. She still had the cancer, but survived. The morbidity was much diminished because the family was able to plan around it. But the one thing she always tells me was rather than, I felt a bit like an amateur because she was rather than compliment the Christie's 
chemotherapy or the surgeons, she said, that thing you told me on the day I arrived to you is what kept me going for the eight years. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away by that. And, and the family gave me the same kind of feedback that she constantly reiterates that phrase, the positive framing. So I think even when there's a potentially serious symptom, whether it's somebody's coughing up chest pain or the smear shows something, it's doing the job it's meant to do. It's picking up something which we can then do something about. For every one of them, there are 10 others who are walking completely unaware that something is going on. So even I compliment patients for the act of making that appointment and coming to me. Yeah, And exactly. I think that helps them to relax. So things like all the things you've told me have been so helpful and clarifying what's going on. Uh, now that I understand what's been going on with you, I can help figure out what's happening. We can plan this together. So there's a lot of approach where while we take this thing seriously and we give it the due attention, you don't need to eliminate reassurance in doing so. Science has to meet the language of positivity to package it together. And sometimes we can be so scientific and forget the reassuring language, but it has an impact on how they engage how they turn up for their appointments, and even in the example I gave you, how they survive their ordeal. Um, it's so I think, powerful. I think that's absolutely right. And actually, you've referred there to some very concrete outcomes. And I think when we say things like, I understand what's happening to you, I'll be following you up throughout this illness, I'm going to take care of you throughout. These things only take a very short amount of time, but actually they do have real effects. And there's a very interesting book called Compassionomics, which actually looks at the concrete outcomes of better care. And one of the things we know, for example, is that people who have good palliative care often survive better than people who have chemotherapy. And that's because they're looked after very carefully their symptoms are attended to, their emotional situation is attended to. And I think these things can be a way in which patients feel that we're holding them in mind, that we're caring for them. And there's a way in which that's quite comforting and empowering, even if they're not in the room. So when they go home and they know that their doctor is saying, well, I want to see you again, or I'll be looking out for the letter from the hospital, or I'm going to be making sure that everything gets done that needs to be done, they can sort of hold that psychologically, even when they're at home. And that can have quite long-term effects. Now, I think this also translates into the way that we explain certain kinds of illnesses and diseases. And there will be a podcast in this series about explaining functional symptoms. But I thought we might just refer here a little bit to helpful ways to explain things that don't have nocebo effects. Now, I know that everybody who ever breaks a bone, the orthopedic surgeons always say to them, well, if you break a bone in your wrist, you're going to get arthritis one day in it. And I've looked after millions of people with arthritis and none of them ever had any fractures in the area where they got the arthritis. So I think that's an example of a kind of nocebo threat to people. Um, and I wondered if you've got some phrases that might be more helpful and more positive, even when we're talking about symptoms that people have. You mentioned arthritis. Before general practice, I did a considerable amount of time in the hospital, and I did work with um, orthopedic departments and the general, in the general surgery department. And you're absolutely right about the words we use. They're, they're so memorable. People recall what you told them 10 years before. It shows how ingrained it can become. So it's, it's really important to, for us to evaluate what we say 
consider the impact of what we say on their progress. So for example, we use the term wear and tear, it's become like common parlance to describe osteoarthritis. Well, it's quite a destructive kind of phraseology. It says, you know, there's a wear and tear in your, in your body. So your own sort of image of what's going on inside can be quite dramatic. If you describe it as what normally happens is wear and repair, because the body heals itself constantly, your bones take a lot of damage and then recover from that. And there's a lot of healing, your skin, your liver, your bones constantly heal. And that physiological process is not quite visible to the patients and it's not positively framed to them. So it'll be nice for us to, even simply replacing the term tear to repair gives them a positive methodology to remember or even to get better. And mm -hmm. it may help them engage with the process of physiotherapy or exercising because they think I'm also helping this repair. My body's trying to repair it, so here I am helping. Whereas if you wear and tear, you're almost telling them, there's no, whatever you do, yeah. it's going to keep on tearing. Yeah. So you may stop engaging. And some people's psychology are like that because they think, what's the point? The body's going to do that anyway. So it's, it's to take away the futility of some of the words yeah. we use and make it positively framed. We get a lot of consultations where an exacerbation of physiological processes like the fight-flight response so, for example, we consult a lot of patients who come with irritable bowel syndrome, and we tend to use the word spasms um, rather than say there will be a tightness in the gut, which treatment can relax. So if you say spasm, you almost imply that it requires an antispasmodic, whereas if you say tightness in the gut, but the treatment can relax, and there's a variety of things which can help to relax the gut, the patient may ask you, is there things I can do to relax the gut, rather than make it a medical model? Even in a large proportion of patients who consult us with chronic pain syndrome, there is this understanding or they think that the level of pain is directly proportionate to the level of damage in the body. That's when the scan becomes unfortunately normal because they think, why can't you see the damage I'm feeling? Making sure that hurt is not always due to harm. The level of pain is not directly proportionate to the level of damage in your bones. That could explain why the scan is normal. Now we can work on why you perceive the pain or feel the pain at such level can really help them to understand what is going on. And a lot of these, I didn't consider them as part of the treatment until the patient started telling me so. I would consider a consultation where I haven't picked up the prescription pad or made a diagnosis or referred them to a scan. Initially, coming from the hospital, you feel like, what did I actually do? But when they come back to you and give you the feedback to say, your explanation has really helped me to get better. I'm now free of those symptoms or I experience the symptoms a lot lesser. Stresses the real importance of how such words, such framing, can reduce the nocebo effect and enhance the placebo effect as well. I think that's all really, really interesting. And there's some really good examples of things that we could all take away to try out there. I'd like to discuss a little bit before we finish about how to teach and learn the skills of positive language. We do this in one-to-one -one or small group situations. Do you have any particular experience of how you do this one-to-one -one with, with small groups or one-to-one -one with trainees? And then I'm going to talk a bit about what we might do with larger groups in a moment. Certainly. I think all the elements of 
what we talked about work really well in a one-to-one scenario as well as in a group scenario. In my experience as a GP trainer, I find trainees can range from those with naturally reassuring, positive framing narrative skills to those who may struggle, even though they may have it intrinsically, may de-emphasize that because they're trying to learn something like a consultation model. So they may lose some of their natural reassuring skills. And you have these bizarre scenarios where in a consulting room, the trainee may not utter positive framing or come up with a sentence which can have a placebo effect. But you see them in the reception where a receptionist says something about something went wrong. and They are fully empathetic and they can do that. So it's identifying the range of trainees where do they actually naturally have these skills? Then we have to help them to label those skills, to articulate what they really mean and give them some terminology to understand they are actually skills that's not just you and your personality so that they can continue to do that and realize their importance and use them in scenarios where they may stop using them. That's one category. The other category will belong to those trainees who have somehow devalued the language in consultation and make it a mechanical clocking kind of Mm -hmm. conversation. So we have to bring them back and even teach them to use some phrases. And then the other category is when English is not your first language. A lot of trainers may assume the trainee in front of them is an unempathetic, unengaged, lack of rapport person, whereas they haven't seen them talk in their first language. (laughs) When you're learning a second language and a technical language at that, it's very hard when your brain is trying to recall what phrase to use here. Your brain freezes, your face, your facial muscles do not demonstrate and your intonation does not demonstrate empathy. Not because you're not empathetic, it's just because you haven't had the practice of doing so. In those kind of category of trainees is helping them understand this is happening, getting them to see that this is happening, that when a patient said something quite emotional, you were so hard trying to think about the next question, you forgot to spend a few seconds expressing empathy and to explore with them how can they best express empathy because i find the word teach slightly didactic in these circumstances is invite them to express their empathy in a way which is comfortable with them this will avoid them trying to recall stock phrases they heard in courses which they're trying to use and also it will stop them from having bizarre scenarios where the patient may have told them that my dog's just died and the the trainee's so busy thinking about what should i ask next is do you smoke yeah exactly (laughs) yeah 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 i think Uh, that idea of um it's almost like giving people permission to be human beings within the context of the of the consultation i think sometimes people worry about that because they think they'll become overwhelmed or there'll be too much emotion but actually if we are empathetic not in a kind of I feel your pain kind of way but in a way that recognizes the experience of the person with us the warmth and encouragement we get back from the patient actually gives us more energy it's not draining it's it's more draining to try and keep up a strict front of not expressing anything in some ways I just wanted to add one more thing in this section in the one-to-one which is really a powerful impact is getting them to have that experience i asked them have they had experience of being a patient a lot of them haven't been ill and getting them to understand what it is like to turn up at a consultation with somebody who's going to explain who will probably tell you what's going on or reassure you and understand the role of general practice and being a gp in that place as well so more than consultation and communication skills is understanding the internal attitudes which promote as behaviors in these learners as well. So I find they're quite linked 
when you do the one-to-one -one sessions. It's a really powerful way of asking for their illness experience or their relatives' illness yeah. experience. And what was it like when you had somebody not really use the kind of language which would be reassuring? Yeah. Um, and I give some examples of when we were being consented. I'm saying we, it was my wife who got consented for a cesarean section. The way the doctor described the cesarean section was so nocebo effect and so anxiety inducing. We almost felt like, let's, let's, let's go home now. <laughs> let's not go into the theater. Um, that, so he, but for a doctor or a nurse, it can be so disruptive. So you can imagine how, what it is for somebody who, who's not in that field yeah. as well. So Absolutely. yeah, those kind of things really help in the one-to-one -one experience. And you've got a lot of experience working with groups in your role as PCM. And you must have really good examples of how you can teach this. Yeah, I think working with, with groups, it, it's interesting. I, I often do this kind of thing quite opportunistically. So for example, if we're discussing what might seem a fairly concrete thing, like how to treat respiratory illness in, in general practice, often the discussion comes up like, well, how do you tell people that they don't need antibiotics or things like that? And this could be a really useful starting point for discussing how to explain normal findings using the kind of ideas that we've talked about already. And I think it's helpful to help people focus on what needs to be done rather than referring to negative findings and what isn't needed. So nobody starts a discussion about a minor upper respiratory tract infection by saying, well, you don't need methotrexate today. But people are, feel quite sort of okay to say something like, well, you don't need antibiotics. Well, why mention what they don't need? It's much better to talk about what they do need and the ways in which you're going to help them or that they can help themselves or the things they're going to look out for. And if people then say, well, I was expecting a course of antibiotics, then you can respond to that in a positive way by explaining what's going on. So what I would do is get participants, perhaps in pairs initially, to explain some URTI findings to somebody who's who they think is going to recover with no specific treatment. And then in pairs to discuss how you could positively frame examination findings, for example, or expectations about recovery. And also to encourage them to be realistic, because I've heard people say, say things like, well, you've got a really bad head cold. Uh, if you're not better in a day or two, get back in touch. Well, I've had really bad head colds and I felt rough for a week at least. That is the way of things. Things don't get better that quickly. You do have to wait. So you have to encourage people to be accurate in their expectations. And sometimes I'd give the group some very specific phrases and then challenge them to find alternate ways to say it. So you could say, well, here's a phrase. I can't find anything abnormal in your chest. Can you find a positive way to say that? Or the scan were all negative or what's a better way to say that or even very common can I take a quick look at you because I think you can get a lot of kudos from patients by simply saying I'd like to have a thorough examination of your chest now and it takes no longer to say that but actually somebody already is primed to think this is a doctor who cares who's thinking carefully and is going to do the job properly so they can also work through some pre-prepared scenarios and in the written materials that support this chapter there are some sample scenarios that people can can use in teaching. So I'd like to thank you for a really interesting and very wide-ranging discussion. There are lots of resources, written materials and references in the written parts of this chapter and there are other chapters in this module including why are effective summarising skills the engine of the consultation and can you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So we look forward to meeting you on TAUC in the future. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.